So, Jay, Warpies. Indubitably. What? What? I, I just wanted to know if they're mutants. The Warpies? Yes and no. They're mutants in that they're mutated, but they're not capital M X-gene carrying mutants. The Warpies were mutated by the Jaspers warp specifically. Oh yeah, the reality collapse caused by Jim Jaspers. Exactly. And there's just one batch of Warpies, right? Yes, but that's just because the two batches of Warpies that have existed didn't exist simultaneously. Wait, there are more? Well, no, now they're the only ones. What happened to the originals? Captain Britain used Excalibur to return them to human form. How'd the team manage that? Oh, not Excalibur the team. Excalibur the enchanted sword. Now I'm even more confused. Ah, it was some other world magic thing. You know. Ah. Although, it turned out the whole mess was actually the result of kind of massive, mysterious, cross-dimensional machinations. When is it not? Who was it this time? Roma? The Phoenix Force? King the Conqueror. Figures. And Widget. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 220 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome, sadly, to almost the end of Alan Davis's run of Excalibur. God, Jay, I'm going to miss him so much. I want to just spread this out as long as we can. Like, maybe we can do, like, half an issue a week or so, just talk for a long time about Kitty's hair. I feel like with sufficient in-depth love, we could totally do a page of Excalibur per episode, and it would be maybe boring. I mean, I do want to talk about his, his, his increasing use of screen tones as we come into this arc. I'm excited to learn more about that, because I don't know anything about screen tones. I mean, he's just using them more. Oh, well, that's good. So... Yeah, we are in the second-to-last storyline, or rather, the pair of second-to-last storylines of Davis's run. There will be one more after this. Is there a word for that? Are they the duo-penultimate storylines or something like that? I just made that up, so it's uh, you shouldn't start using that word. I, I don't know if it's real. Although I feel like duo-penultimate would be a great name for, like, an Xbox gamer tag or something like that. I feel like it would be the kind of pretentious Xbox gamer tag that you'd come up with in college because you thought it sounded cool, and then, like, years later, people would ask you where it came from or what it meant, and you'd just sort of shrug awkwardly. Dude, that's like 90% of gamer tags. Oh, I'm well aware. Anyway, so yeah, we're going to be covering uh, one of the plot lines from Excalibur number 61 through 65 today. Right, now this arc has two simultaneous storylines. One of them involves the Phoenix Force in space, and we're going to shelve that one completely for now. We're going to talk about it later in combination with the story that comes in, um, immediately after this, because today we want to focus on the return of the Warpies. Remember those guys? I do! They were in Captain Britain Volume 2, the Jamie Delano, Alan Davis run that was goddamn wonderful. I had that in trade paper back when I was a kid, and I'd never read the Alan Moore run that came before it. I don't think that had come out in America at the time, or at least I couldn't find it. So a lot of it was very confusing, but it had TechNet, it had Megan, it had the Warpies, it had all sorts of glorious, glorious stuff. 
Yeah, and we covered that at length in uh, episodes 97 and 98 of the show. I'll link to those in the visual companion. We also, we're also skipping issues 59 and 60 entirely for now. Um, those are both fill-ins written by Joe Quisada and penciled by Scott Collins. Uh, Nightcrawler and Cerise fight an old man. Um, and continue to date, and Captain Britain's powers have been failing unpredictably, and that's really all you need to know from those to go into this arc. Yeah, there's some Wakanda stuff, and it's pretty iffy, and I feel perfectly fine talking about this storyline instead. Yay! Okay, so we should probably talk a little bit about the old Captain Britain stuff, because while this arc does do an admirable job of filling us in, like, a lot happened back then. I am literally always up for talking about old Captain Britain. Let's do it. Okay, I think we can keep this really brief. So, there was this thing that we just mentioned in the cold open called the Jaspers Warp. That was where a guy named Jim Jaspers managed to mess up one dimension completely, and then his Earth-616 version messed up Earth-616 pretty thoroughly, too. It was a major problem. It collapsed a section of the multiverse. And it also resulted in the birth of a bunch of mutated kids who weren't actually X-Gene mutants, and these are the Warpies. Now, the Warpies were sent after Captain Britain... Uh, by a British intelligence group called the RCX, the Resource Control Executive. I think that's hilarious. Which part? Just that they use, just that it's RCX instead of RCE. RCX sounds way, way cooler. Yeah, but it's not an accurate acronym. And it's one thing when you're titling a comic book about something, but this is an actual government agency, an actual fictional government agency, but still. And this, it's true, this was before Captain Britain was in any way X-Men affiliated, so they had much less of a right to that acronym. Uh, I, I will quote Bill here and say, I think they think it sounds cool. <laughs> right. Anyway, the RCX wanted Captain Britain to be their figurehead so they could, you know, have more influence over British politics. And that went poorly, but it did result in Psylocke and a couple of RCX agents, Gabriel and Michael, hanging out at Braddock Manor for a while and co-raising the Warpies, who were all young kids at this point and are, are still relatively young. And actually, in fact, Psylocke was briefly engaged to Agent Gabriel. Until continuity as a whole completely forgot about that plot point. You know what? Blame the Jasper's Warp. It works for pretty much every everyone else. The other thing that the Jasper's Warp brought us, which isn't going to tie into this arc at all, but which I think is worth mentioning because they've popped up relatively recently and we usually don't go back to their origins is the crazy gang yeah they were from earth 238 the original jim jasper's world that got completely obliterated that's also the reality from whence hails captain uk indeed so there's your very brief captain britain primer um like jay said if you want to learn more check out episodes 97 and 98 of our show those episodes were fun i liked them so more recently in excalibur Rachel Summers was killed fighting the evil wizard Necrom and is currently being rebuilt out in space by the Phoenix Force. She's out of play for the moment. During that fight, Excalibur destroyed their own lighthouse, and also the equivalent across the entire multiverse, in order to disrupt the Omniversal Energy Matrix that Master Manipulator Merlin built to control the multiverse like a great big jerk because he's a great big jerk. You know, I didn't ask this at the time, but... Was the lighthouse a functioning lighthouse? Because if so, this could have created some problems that went way beyond, or not way beyond, but more local problems than the multiversal implications. Oh man, yeah, sailors have it rough enough in the Marvel Universe. Like, they always end up on islands with despair, or have Fin Fang Foom pick up their ship and try to throw it. Not super a Dr. Astronaut Peter Corbeau. That's true, he's fine. He doesn't need a lighthouse. He probably, like, just carries his own little flare to project lighthouse flares for all the other ships around him. 
Maybe he's already figured out some kind of alternate system of coastal navigation that is, is just in mass use in the Marvel Universe. Maybe Starkor helps from space. That seems likely, but more specific to Excalibur, they're now living in Braddock Manor. And Jay, who do we have on Excalibur these days? Well, we've got OGs, Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, Captain Britain, and Megan. And with them are a passel of new members. Those are Alien Warrior Cerise. Technically 616 mutant, but raised in a an Edgar Rice Burroughs dimension, Warrior Kylan. And obnoxious would-be Phoenix host, Farron. There's also Widget. You remember Widget, cute little robot head, sent Excalibur through the cross-time caper for about 75 years? Widget is, is existing when he exists in a somewhat altered form. His main deal these days is popping in and out of reality with a lot of static, um, just in time to yell dark portents about sentinels and some kind of terrible future, and while doing so, to look like what looks like a cross between future sentinel Nimrod and a really sloppy tie-dye t-shirt. It's actually really cool looking. Um, I make it sound kind of trashy, but no, he's great. He kind of looked more like a cross between Ultraman and one of those hypercolor t-shirts, or just, you know, psychedelics, as a concept. My mom had one of those hypercolor t-shirts, and, um, I broke it. How, how do you break a hypercolor t-shirt? Well, you're about seven years old in this scenario, and you are curious as to what would happen if it's frozen, because, you know, obviously heat changes the color, and so you put it in the freezer, and then you forget about it for a year. <laughs> Sorry, Robin. I mean, it's not like she ever wore it anyway. Apparently not. It would be very cold. Uh, I mean, clearly, like, none of us remembered it for a year. It wasn't, it wasn't like we were actively hunting for it for all that time. Jay, do you remember that friend we had in college whose parrot died right before a break, and so she put the parrot into a shoebox in the freezer and then forgot it was there when she came back? You know, I would make an Arrested Development joke here, except as I recall, she just labeled it Do Not Open. <laughs> Good advice, really. Yeah, um, shout out if you're listening. Anyway, so, with that backstory aside, and with the caveat, again, that the Phoenix stuff, we're gonna get to that later, let's see what's going on with a bunch of old Captain Britain stuff come to the modern, by which we mean 1993-616. We're beginning with Excalibur number 61, Truth and Consequence. The issue opens with Captain Britain and Nightcrawler, who's wearing this Cerise-built energy armor that kind of reminds me of that weird armor from the Dune movie. Uh, yeah, they're sparring. Does it? What it reminds me of is, like, gummy candies? That would be way less effective as armor. It, it, but specifically, it looks like the gummy candy equivalent of Cameron Hodge, actually robot Cameron Hodge's ruby quartz armor. Which also reminded me of that first Dune movie. Man, that movie's weird. Anyway, in this sparring match, Captain Britain doesn't do so hot because he's been really preoccupied with getting revenge on the evil dictator Satire 9 for murdering and then replacing Captain Britain's old girlfriend, Courtney Ross. Fair enough. Megan disagrees with you on that last point, on the fair enough part. In fact, she storms off because she's so sick of Brian obsessing about Courtney first in life and now in death. And Kurt takes a moment to suggest to Captain Britain that maybe he should focus on, on the hot blonde girlfriend who's still alive and, and, you know, step the hell up. I really love that what used to be a sort of love triangle has now just turned into Kurt being a really supportive friend to both of them. Yeah, well, I mean, Kurt is, is, is busy practicing the fine art of lip massage with Cerise, but also one of the things I really like about the Kurt-Captain Britain-Megan love triangle, even when it exists, 
is that Kurt genuinely wants Megan to be happy. Like he has he has a crush on her. He would like it if Megan being happy involved being with him. But his wishes for her and on her behalf genuinely have to do with her having the the thing that she wants in its best possible form. Kurt Wagner is so emotionally mature and I like him. He's a good dude and he looks great in turtlenecks. Seriously. Meanwhile, Shadowcat is working to fix up the computer cavern under Braddock Manor. You remember there's like a big sort of organic computer coating all the cavern surfaces and it's also mastermind and sometimes it turns into a holographic old man to hang out with real old ladies. But it's not mastermind, the one who casts illusions. It's just also named mastermind, sort of like Warren um, Worthington III's uncle is named Dazzler. Kind of like that. God, that conjures up some amazing mental images that are totally inaccurate. There's, there is like a one-page sequence where you get Warren's family's weird backstory or sort of what they've been up to in the, in the meantime, and it's just exactly the plot of Hamlet in two panels. I love that. Sort of like how Strange Brew, the Bob and Doug McKenzie movie about Canadians who drink too much, was, was also about Hamlet. Or that weird little aside in Island of the Sequin Love Nun. Yeah. I feel like we should have, have more Hamlet references in our show. Like, not talking about Hamlet, but just have things we're describing that it turns out are really Hamlet. Isn't everything, really? Kitty's trying to get a hand from the otherwise useless Farron, you know, the whiny little kid who's still pissed off that he didn't get the Phoenix Force. He will have none of it. No! Servile tasks are unworthy of my ability. Kitty gets understandably angry, talking about how the monks that raised Farron made Farron think he was special, but took care of him so he had it super easy and he never actually learned to try or do anything right. And Farron points out aptly that yeah just like the x-men did with her i mean fair fair point actually and kitty does acknowledge it but their argument is interrupted by new widget suddenly appearing in all his hypercolor glory and yelling about sentinels and mutant kind being doomed and all that sort of thing and kitty's getting pretty frustrated by this point where are the sentinels he's gone this is getting stupid this is getting stupid, the Excalibur story, but, like, in the best possible way. Aw. Captain Britain and Megan decide to peace out and go on vacation to the beach for a week. Captain Britain's taking Nightcrawler's advice to heart and trying to focus on his relationship. Megan wishes they could stay. And Captain Britain agrees, but... Megan, I have a duty. Without it, I'm half a person. But I can't conceive of living without you. I want you to know that. Uh, please sit down. W what I'm trying to say, and I'll understand if you decline, is I'd be honored if you'd consent to becoming my wife. Megan, will you marry me? Oh, yes, Brian. Yes! Man, this is adorable. Like, they've been such an unhealthy couple at so many points in the past, and Brian's been a great big jerk, but they've both really tried, and he's really tried, and now they're a lot better, and I just want nice things for them. I really liked the beginning of that. That was just, this is so adorable. They've been such an unhealthy couple. <laughs> well, there is that. Yeah, no, they've, I, I actually, I really enjoy the arc of their relationship, and I think... Captain Britain learning how to person is is a fairly consistent motif in, in the first half of Excalibur. And it's an arc that reads pretty true, as does Megan learning to stand up for herself. 
Agreed. Yeah, they really grow toward one another rather than apart as so many couples with problems do. And I like that about them. It's, it's a nice little bit of hope. But Captain Britain and Megan won't actually get married until issue number 125, the last issue of Excalibur. So they're going to be engaged for like a super long time and, you know, they're going to disappear and die here and there in the meantime. But don't worry, it all works out. Captain Britain's going to come back from the time stream with a super righteous mullet. He truly will. We'll be getting to that in, I don't know, not too long. Anyway, meanwhile, somewhere else in presumably the British Isles, I don't remember, hotshot, full-of-himself radio DJ Scott Wright meets a hot chauffeur lady who's taking him to a meeting with a television studio. But that lady's no lady. It's a lumpy cartoon green guy who's followed by a bunch of warpies that we've seen before from that old Captain Britain run. These are the cherubim specifically. They're the group of warpies who are, are the sort of elite battle-trained ones. Um, and again, remembering that they're all basically kids. And these folks are here to capture Scott, to capture... Um, Scott Wright, specifically, who's Micromax, one of the many fail Scots of the Marvel Universe, because their boss has been trying to set up a meeting with Micromax, and Micromax has not been returning his calls, and therefore, they're here to force Micromax's hand. Now, speaking of captures, speaking of, of connections, Excalibur gets a call from a very, very upset Alistair Stewart. Alistair has found out who framed his sister and had her and, and set her up to be killed. And it he 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 manages to get out that it was the RCX before the call is cut out and Alistair's captured. Listeners, you remember that thing where we said that we didn't think Alistair and the RCX and Allison from the last arc was gonna get followed up on? Um, yeah. Whoops. No, no, I realized why we think that, because it's literally only mentioned in one panel of this story. While that is sort of technically, fo- this this whole thing is sort of technically follow-up, it's not treated as, as such. True, yeah, we don't get many details. So let's go straight into Excalibur number 62, of birth, death, and the confused, painful bit in between. That covers, I was going to say most of the bases, but honestly in a superhero comic, fewer than you'd think. Regardless, it's written by Alan Davis, penciled likewise by Alan Davis, uh, with Mark Farmer, inked by Mark Farmer, and colored by Rosas Moorhead and Thomas. And we open back with our good pals at the RCX. Alistair has been brought to the RCX's ironically named Subterranean Cloud Nine facility, which is now run by Agent Peter, um, who is actually Nigel or- Orpington Smythe, the former UK Minister of Defense. Two things. One, Nigel Orpington Smythe is a delightfully British name, and two, Peter, Michael, Gabriel, if you're noticing a trend, yeah, the whole RCX naming conventions is all about uh, Christian terminology. Well, no, they're specifically, previously they were all archangels, but um, we have moved into apostles with the current batch. Which is interesting. So here's the part where that must be really weird for readers that didn't read Captain Britain Volume 2, but thankfully we're going to get a nice little recap shortly. In the meantime... In the meantime, Alistair recognizes and challenges Orpington Smythe, whose name I want to say as much as possible. Um, But Orpington Smythe has a fancy button that he is able to press and summon a bunch of very badass warpies. This batch are named uh, Aberdeen Angus, Mustard, Shrew, Salt, and Celery. 
And there's a reason for this, which is that there are a lot of warpies and they've got a lot of powers. And they came up with, with a bunch of cool code names for the first few dozen and then just went, yeah, screw it. We're just going to go animal, vegetable, mineral, animal, vegetable, mineral, and name them at random from here. I love that. I love the idea of having so many super beings that only the early ones get cool names and the rest just have to be, you know, celery. I mean, that's basically the Legion of Superheroes, right? God, yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? Anyway, this is totally a setup. They are using Alistair Stewart to lure in his buddy's Excalibur for an ambush. And RCX, meanwhile, is gaining a lot of official power, too. They have absorbed both the Weird Happenings organization, who, which was what um, Alicent Stewart ran before her assassination, and FI6, which was... Yeah, an equivalent parallel organization that My- Micromax had been part of. Now, eventually, later in Excalibur, RCX is itself going to get taken down and absorbed into an organization called Black Air, but that's not for a while yet. Oh, man, yeah, that's the Warren Ellis run, isn't it? It is, yeah, that's Pete Wisdom stuff. Alistair is horrified to see what's going on, which, fair enough, we love the weird happenings organization, and, like, FI6 were kind of jerks, but they didn't deserve this. Yeah, speaking of weird happenings, you know what I just realized this arc is missing? What? Disapproving Die Thomas. Oh yeah, Die Thomas would just scowl at like everything, and he'd be kind of ineffectual, but he'd still be there in the last scene to scowl some more. Yeah, no, he would disapprove of literally everything happening here so hard, and we would be with him on that. That's right. So Alistair, like Die Thomas would, disapproves. He sees Peter and a guy named Luke, another RCX official, experimenting on Micromax, but all of them are interrupted by a warpy kid in critical condition being rushed down the hall. This is the saddest child. This is Beetroot. Vegetable name. Um, also presumably named for his appearance because he looks like a beet. And he is a young warpy telepath. And Alistair, who doesn't have mental shields, is caught up in Beetroot's dying thoughts, which include a recap of many of the events, warpy perspective version, from Captain Britain Volume 2. But... There's a twist. When the Warpies and RCX are quartered at Braddock Manor, Beetroot saw a mysterious malefactor, whom I think we're supposed to assume is Peter, blowing up the cavern under Braddock Manor where the supercomputer was based. Yeah, and this is so rough. I mean, it's a great narrative convention because we're getting invested as readers, and if we haven't read the old Captain Britain stuff, we're getting a pretty good recap of it in a really emotional way rather than just being pure storytelling. But it just hammers home how much the new RCX is fucking awful. And the old RCX were kind of assholes, too. Like, Gabriel and Michael were manipulative douchebags, but, like, they look like freaking angels, not, you know, the archangels that people are named after here, by comparison. Well, and they actually seem to care about the Warpies, which Peter fairly clearly doesn't really. Beetroot makes me super sad because I feel like if this had been... In, in the D.C. metro area or New York, he would inevitably have ended up a third of the Artie and Leach triumvirate because he is a lumpy psionic kid who just wants what's best for everyone. Oh, Artie and Leach would be so nice to Beetroot, and now Beetroot will we'll never know. Goddamn. It's so sad. I mean, for so many reasons. Meanwhile, on the surface, speaking of Warpies, another set of Warpies has found Excalibur, who've yeah, come searching for Alistair. Currently, that's just Kurt, Kitty, and Cerise because Captain Britain and Megan are off on vacation and Rachel's off in space and manages to, to subdue Excalibur and drag them down. And Peter informs Excalibur that, well, 
All three of them are, in fact, living illegally in the UK. So Excalibur is now disbanded and they're working for and in the custody of the RCX. God damn it, Peter. The thing is, he comes off as so just genteel and kind and caring, but there are these little edges that we see. No, he doesn't. Oh my god, he comes off as an evil bureaucrat who's manipulating everyone. He's got that smirk. He uses that terminology. I would not trust this man in any context. But he does seem to genuinely care about the Warbies. He's at least giving off that No, he doesn't. I think he does. I think he's got that nice sort of softness to him that totally works. No, he's the dude who goes, but think of the children. And you know that he's not. He's thinking of the children as an effect of of pawns. Well, obviously that's the case, but I don't know. I think he's pretty good at play acting. Anyway, readers, you read the issues, you be the judge. In the meantime, let's go to Excalibur number 63, Denial. Once again, written and penciled by Alan Davis, inked by Mark Farmer, and colored by Glynis Oliver. And we open with a character we haven't really seen much of since he decided to take a leave of absence from Excalibur to go find his parents. That is Kylan. And Kylan, along with Satanine, his bride from Erath, the earth on which he spent most of his life, they're bravely battling the wizard Necrom, and they slay him heroically. Wait a minute, that is not how it went down. It's totally not how it went down, and sure enough, after this grand battle, when Kylan and Satanine embrace, Satanine crumbles to dust horror style, and he wakes up. It was all a dream, and he is sleeping up against a tree outside the home he grew up in as a small child. Because, remember, it's been like 20 years for him that he spent on Erath, a world where time flows differently. In Earth-616, his parents lost their little boy Colin like a year ago, and Kylan's trying to figure out how the hell to talk to them. It's going to be like Flight of the Navigator, but in reverse, and also if David had turned into a giant cat guy. That, That didn't happen in Flight of the Navigator? You and I remember that movie differently. And also didn't grow up and rob banks. Huh. The actor who played him did it was actually kind of sad. Oh, that's that's deeply unfortunate. You should know better actor who played that character. Anyway, Kylan does finally screw up his courage and go to knock on his parents' door with like a full half page of dialogue as he does so. And then some warpies attack him. And his blades, which will only cut wicked people, it will not cut the pure of heart, go through through the Warpies, they're not bad people, and they manage to knock him out and take him to Cloud Nine just like they did Micromax. It's important to remember, and it's easy to forget because they don't look like, they don't all look like children, that the Warpies are all basically kids under the age of five. Exactly, or maybe a little bit older at this point. It's really hard to tell how the timeline works. I mean, it's Marvel time, but they're, they're very young children. They are. Well, back at Warpy HQ, which is to say Cloud Nine, Peter, that is of course Nigel Orpington Smythe. Orpington Smythe. Patches up Kurt, Kitty, and Cerise after the big fight. Now, he doesn't imprison them, but he does give each of them a power neutralizing Warpy guide and chaperone. And these kids are so goddamn cute! They really are. One's this little spherical hovering girl with her hair pulled up, and she just looks super beatific, and one's this little electric kid. Like, oh, I love Alan Davis's creature design. Whenever he gets to draw people that aren't exactly normal humans, they're always delightful. So, man, you know how Secret War was designed to be basically Toy Sales, the comic? Oh, yeah. I wish that they'd made Toys of the Warpies. Oh, seriously, they're like the comic book equivalent of ugly dolls, but like a thousand times better. No, they would be like little squishy, plasticky things. They'd be like little glowworms. 
I remember glowworms. Those things were rad. Yeah, apparently there's a new generation of them that are, are actually really creepy looking. They're not supposed to be, but they are. They have thousands of eyes and razor sharp mandibles and they're dripping eye core. Oh, I wish. Anyway, Peter, who may or may not be coming off as a decent dude depending on your perspective. Nope. Explains the crisis that Cloud9 is undergoing. 63 of Cloud9's warpies, of which there are about 400, have been hit with a genetic breakdown disease. They're in suspended animation until a cure can be found. And it's important to note here that Peter specifically refers to the warpies as mutants. And since none of these characters were around for the Jasper's warp, nobody questions him. It's worth noting, I think, because we're starting to talk about the legacy virus, that this disease is unrelated to the legacy virus and, in fact, works almost in, in reverse. This, the genetic breakdown disease starts by um, taking away the Warpies' powers. Their appearance then re- reverts to human. They, they go back to what would have been their baseline human form had they not been born Warpies, and then they die. Yeah, at this time, Excalibur as a comic was not being run by the X office. It was being run by a different set of editors, as I understand it. So I guess it's just a weird coincidence. Well, there was, there was, do you remember there was also the other proto legacy virus that was, that showed up in, in um, Marvel Comics Presents? Oh, yeah, I do remember that one. That was that storyline where Cyclops and Banshee teamed up on Muir Island and fought robots, and one of them said, shut up. Yeah, that was like the retribution virus or something like that? I think it was something like that. Anyway, Shadowcat takes this opportunity to explain what children are to Cerise, who apparently has never heard of them in her civilization. Remember, Cerise was not intended to be Shi'ar at this point. She was just generically weird alien. Yeah, Cerise is, is, is baffled as to why some humans are smaller than others, and is very excited that there is actually a plausible explanation for why Shadowcat is, is comparatively small and puny. It's adorable. I kind of love Cerise. Anyway, Excalibur agrees that while Cloud9 may be kind of shitty in some ways, and they didn't appreciate being beaten up, that they do want to help here. I mean, there are a bunch of kids dying, and that's not cool. And there's actually a wonderful scene right at this point where a bunch of young Warpies show up to meet Excalibur now that Excalibur's not imprisoned, and they're all Excalibur fanboys and fangirls because Excalibur's Britain's premier superhero team, and a lot of them, especially Nightcrawler, don't look quite standard. And so basically, this is the coolest day of all freaking time. And Davis draws smiles and hugs so well, and this scene is no exception. Yeah, this is really, really cute. And in fact, one of them who goes by Silkworm makes Kurt a new costume because he finds out that Kurt's was destroyed. And it's okay. It makes good use of of screen tone. Hmm. Oh, so that's what screen tone is in the great. That is what screen tone is. It's the stuff that you that's the little the little dots or the little bits of texture. And in in physical physical comics art, you cut that stuff out with an exacto and glue it down onto the page. Interesting. That's really cool. Yeah. And it came in, in different patterns, different different sizes and of, of dots or types of grids. Well, Peter, whose real name we should remind you is Jay. Ah, yes, that would be Nigel Orpington Smythe, Orpington Smythe, Orpington Smythe, Orpington Smythe. He talks about how Cloud9's had a lot of trouble researching the disease's causes and its nature because all the Warpies are kids, and so their genetic structure hasn't been finalized, which I don't think that's how mutants have historically worked in the Marvel Universe, but it's not incompatible with that. So, Kurt, who's currently the only fully adult human-based mutant in Cloud9, agrees to fight in their Danger Room equivalent, while five Warpies, each with one super-enhanced sense that, like, manifests on their bodies, so one has super-big ears, one has super-big eyes, analyze everything. And what's really cool here is that the scientists who are watching note 
that Kurt's physical mutations don't really have a lot to do with his official mutant power, his teleportation. They theorize that maybe he got those physical changes because he's a second-generation mutant, that he got them from his parents. This is something we've seen before. More Rachel's real mutant powers, according to Alan Davis, are time travel, and the telepathy and telekinesis are inherited. They're not exactly mutant powers so much as hereditary powers. This is neat. I don't know if at the time it was intended for Mystique to be Kurt's mom, if Alan Davis had that in mind as Claremont had before, but it fits really nicely. We need to get a geneticist on here at some point. We probably do. But back at the coast, Captain Britain is testing his weirdly failing powers. They've been failing over the course of his vacation, which has made him very sad, even though Megan's told him that, hey, it happens to all mutants sometimes. Wah, wah. They're definitely still failing, by the way. That is the result of the test. But then the cherubim show up here as well to escort them to Cloud Nine. Captain Britain, though, will have none of it, and Britishes at them on your bike as he punches them all. Is that actually an idiom? I looked it up, it totally is. It's basically a really rude way to tell somebody to get lost, and it's so charming. What's the implication that you should, you know, go ride off on your bike? That you will be sent sent away on your bike? I assume it means, yeah, get on your bike and get the hell out of here, because you have a bike. Probably. Okay, okay. Unfortunately, Captain Britain's uh, bravado is not matched by his powers, and the cherubim take him out pretty effectively. In fact, they not only manage to take him out of the equation, but they manage to trick him into first punching Megan out. Oh, that's a total dick move. God damn it, Cherubim. I really, really want to like you, but then you do stuff like that sometimes. It's a dick move, but it's also really good strategy because of the two of them, Megan is by far the more dangerous, especially now with Captain Britain's power slightly on the blink. True. Well... Back at Cloud Nine, Peter and Luke debate whether to trust a guy named Nicholas. Have they just gone into, like, holiday figure names at this point? I guess he was a saint. I mean, you see Nicholas on the next page, and he is in fact basically Santa, but a scientist. Oh, Dr. Santa. PhD. Excellent. Yeah, I think I think part of why Peter and Luke are doomed to fail is that they are pl playing really fast and loose with the naming themes. Mm, you gotta stay consistent. Branding's important. Anyway, Shadowcat manages to shake off her adorable guard by, by using a holographic duplicate in the Cloud9 Danger Room equivalent and goes off spying. First, though, she takes a look at her double and comments that, you know, in the old days, she would have been through like four different costumes in the amount of time she's been wearing this specific one, and she's definitely due for a change up soon. It won't happen anytime soon, but hey, this is the closest we're going to get for a long time, so why not? Take a drink. No, no, no. Think about the drinks you would take if she were to change her costume. Weird. Anyway. Anyway. What Kitty sees is Captain Brit Britain waking up and discovering that Megan is in critical condition. She is on life support, which, because this is a comic book, means that she's in a big tube of liquid. Because that's how life support works in comics. I, I have a lot of problems with this. It's kind of like how if your jaw's broken, they just sort of glue random crap to your cheeks. And if you ever get imprisoned, they just put your hands and feet in great big airplane turbines. Okay. Okay. I can, I can run with that. Now, Peter tries to convince Captain Britain that his power loss, Captain Britain's power loss, is linked to what's happening to the Warpies. Spoiler, no, it, it's really not. Unfortunately, before Shadowcat can spy any further, she is captured and incapacitated and taken and stowed away in a tube in the basement alongside the similarly um, tucked aside Alistair Stewart. 
and the actual Megan and Kylan and Micromax. I feel like the RCX is just slabbing all these characters and so they can get them graded by the CGC and so they can sell them on eBay. That seems extremely likely, but as any good collector knows, you want a collecting copy and a reading copy, and Peter handles this by having a shapeshifter pretend to be Kitty and go tell Kurt that, you know, she managed to shake off her guard and she did some spying and Peter is absolutely on the level and he's just a really great guy. She's very sincere and convincing ish but one thing i really she's very sincere at least yes one thing i really like about this though is that peter is giving his big spiel to kurt uh he talks about how the rcx yes is building a warpy army but they're building a warpy army because of all these vigilantes in the british isles and he just lists off all these different marvel uk characters who were really big at the time like you know motormouth and all the other ones i only ever knew those characters from their trading cards i could never find the comics in america but they always seemed really cool i, I don't know if they actually were nor do i that takes us to our final issue of the episode, Excalibur number 65, White Lies, Dark Truth. This is written and penciled by Alan Davis, inked by Mark Farmer, and colored by Glynis Oliver. And we should say, too, one of the things that I, I don't think we mentioned is that an alarm goes off while Kurt's in the danger room, while they're measuring his functions, and Peter determines that Kurt is now suffering from the same disease as the Warpies, the same genetic breakdown. Remember, Peter's been describing Warpies as just being a specific type of mutants, and Kurt is, of course, a mutant. Now, this is all lies. It is. Kurt, though, is still working on curing the disease. He doesn't trust Kitty, though, this young woman who should be so familiar who's been talking to them. She was really sincere about Peter, and that was kind of weird, but she was also, like, almost stage-whispering about the whole thing. And he knows that Kitty is much better at being subtle, which, you know, fair enough, she is clever. Also, her nose briefly went all woobly and changed shape, which was kind of a giveaway, too. That, too. So Kurt feigns exhaustion and then loses the guard kids by making out super hard with Cerise in his room. All the kids get really uncomfortable and just leave. And so Kurt and Cerise get their powers back. And I love that among Kurt's arsenal, among his repertoire of superhero techniques, is sexy deception. Is being so sexy that he makes the people around him kind of uncomfortable and feel like they're seeing something that they shouldn't. And so they just leave. That is so Nightcrawler. Well, he manages to do it while staying pretty much G-rated. He does, yeah. They're just, you know, doing lip massage really, really hard. Cerise is all about this and doesn't even realize it's a deception at first, but once he points out that it is, she's cool with that, too. Yeah, because they, you know, they, they've got the real deal going, too, but sometimes you gotta do some subterfuge. Now, Cerise uses her alien tech, which was not taken away, to confirm that, yeah, the real Kitty Pride is way, way below, along with an unconscious Kylan, Micromax, Megan, and Alistair. Now, there's a side discussion of Kurt's powers here that I kind of want to touch on, because the RCX scientists have been studying him, and they've got some theories as to how some of his more peculiar attributes work, specifically that the reason he can disappear into shadows is that he's perpetually surrounded by sort of an aura of or a vague portal to the dimension he moves through when he teleports. And in discussing this, Kurt also talks about how teleportation, his powers have given him a tremendously clear sense of, sp of spatial awareness. And that between these two things, between, you know, his, his sense of spatial awareness and shadow dimension, he's pretty sure that while he normally doesn't teleport blind, if Cerise gives him the coordinates and the specific measurements of where the rest of Excalibur is being held captive, He's pretty sure he can make it. 
Kurt's going to go alone, but Cerise won't hear any of this. You must take me, Kurt. I feel physical pain at the thought of never seeing you again. I have never known the fear of such emptiness. I feel it too. That is why I cannot let you risk your life. I would rather die than live without you. Our lives are one. I love you, Cerise. And so they kiss and teleport successfully and without dying to the stasis chamber. Okay, let's take a sec. What do we think about this? Because we've seen Kurt and Cerise go on some dates, we've seen them make out a lot, presumably they're sexually involved, but going straight to our lives are one and them being in love, this seems very abrupt. I think that Kurt is just super fucking into the melodrama, and Cerise thinks that this is how everyone does it on Earth. That could be, but you know, I'm I'm okay with that. Like, they're both weirdos, but they're compatible weirdos. Even if one of them is just trying to fit in culturally and feeling things really hard as she does so, and the other one is like four times as romantic as your average person, like, I'm okay with that. I assume that they also do some of this in like deliberately super dramatic voices and then burst into giggles. Maybe. Well, if so, we don't see the giggles. What we do see across the multiverse in Otherworld, the center of the multiverse, where, you know, Roma and Saturnine and previously Merlin ran everything, we see Saturnine and Roma watching the Omniversal Energy Matrix dissipate. That was the thing that Merlin put in place that then got destroyed when Excalibur blew up their lighthouse and all of its equivalents. The thing that kind of was an organizing principle of mystical energy in the multiverse, to at least a degree. The dissipation of the Matrix means, among other things, that Roma's not going to be able to meddle like Merlin used to. And in fact, to prove how cool with it she is, she's not even going to bother to protect Captain Britain right now, even though he's in grave danger. So there. That probably won't be relevant, especially not a couple scenes from now. But in the meantime, Nightcrawler and Cerise, having successfully teleported to the coordinates Cerise's equipment found, they free all the prisoners, including a bunch of old RCX agents from before Peter took over, including, specifically, Michael and Gabriel. Hey, it's Michael and Gabriel. I love them, especially compared to Peter. And Michael and Gabriel and the old RCX operatives, it turns out, have been on ice for five years. God damn, that explains why no writer has mentioned them since Captain Britain Volume 2. Right? Everybody turns their chairs around and raps. They figure, okay, A, Captain Britain's loss of power, that's not due to that disease, that's probably just due to the energy matrix dissipating. You know, the one we just mentioned? That's probably actually the same with the disease that's hitting the Warpies. In fact, those things are related. Peter was kind of right, even if he was lying about it. The Warpies were born during a sort of reality breakdown that was heavily impacted by the energy matrix, and so it makes sense that with no matrix, the thing that made them the way they are, that's not working out so hot anymore. There is a spoon? There, there is. Also, Warpies are not mutants. Thank you very much. It is confirmed here. But as they're figuring out all these assorted theories about mystical stuff, the Cherubim attack, along with the Seraphim, another group of Warpy warriors, and the Advocates, and the Sky Pilots. It's a great, big, religiously named Donnybrook. Um, Kylan manages to scare away the littlest kids, the power-dampening mutants, who really, really aren't brawlers at all, by making some loud, scary noises. And a bunch of uh, the other Warpies decide that this is ridiculous. They shouldn't be fighting Excalibur. Excalibur's the heroes. They're the good guys. And they're going to go help even out the fight. And they spring to Excalibur's defense. 
the Donny Brook gets even Donny Brookier. Also, I do want to mention briefly that the noise Kylan makes to scare everyone is specifically that of an Erathian Gunzigdagia, which is a great name and hard to say. Good job, Kylan. So, Peter, meanwhile, is talking to Captain Britain, trying to convince him to be the RCX's figurehead. You know, just like Gabriel and Michael did way back in the day. But as he keeps talking, he's talking about how this will help the RCX restore Britain's imperial past. They're going to be an empire. They're no. going to take over the world again. They're going to be respected and dominate everybody else as is true and correct. Uncool. Yeah, yeah, he's he's one of those people. Captain Britain's not a fan either. He hates this, and to show it, he punches some nearby machines, which coincidentally were the machines projecting the hologram of Megan being in a coma, the guilt from which Peter was using to manipulate Captain Britain. Wah-wah. Brian, as is traditional in scenarios like this, is very angry and wants to punch more things. Unfortunately, as is also traditional in scenarios like this, it, things go badly for Brian. He does not really have access to his powers, and so he is easily, easily subdued by the higher-powered Warpies who've been hanging out with Peter. And Peter orders the Warpies to knock Captain Britain down again and again, and to hit him any time he tries to get up. And in the process, Brian is beaten almost to death. Yeah, his neck is broken, and it's really clear he's probably moments away from dying. And Davis normally draws such beautiful, wonderful things, and yeah, here he draws obvious, clear, agonizing injuries. Like, Brian's on his way out, and it's super fucked up and sad. Everyone else heads out at this point because they need to deal with the big fight, leaving Captain Britain on the floor, presumably to die. Luckily for Captain Britain, Roma decides, ah, fuck it, I'm going to interfere after all, because it is kind of her fault that Captain Britain is in this pickle. She was the one who set him up to destroy the Matrix, and she was also the one who let him keep running around in the wrong Captain Britain's uniform, which was drawing power from the same Matrix, and so when it started to fall apart, CB lost his powers. Yeah, remember he ended up with Captain Marshall's costume back from the cross-time caper because it was easier for Alan Davis to draw than the original Captain Britain costume? Ah, uh, yes. Thankfully, along with healing Brian... Roma goes ahead and fixes that incompatibility. Captain Britain's in good shape now. Now, he asks, okay, if you were going to help me anyway, why did you let me just get beaten damn near to death? Uh, to which Roma responds, well, because I wanted you to know and to be as sure as I was that you wouldn't give up. Yeah, he says, no, I, I never would. And she tells him that he's really grown and that his father, the otherworld warrior that he never realized was an otherworld warrior, would be proud. That is a bad excuse for letting someone get beaten nearly to death when you have the power to intervene. I mean, usually, but I mean, it is Captain no, Britain. No, no, it's a bad excuse. Well, it's still rather charming and Captain Britain seems charmed even so. No, that's bad charming. Um, but... In any case, Captain Britain heads down to the Grand Melee. Now he's fully powered up and he confronts Peter, who has lost all Warpy support, because the Warpies are, again, they're basically kids and they're basically nice and they don't want to fight with superheroes and they don't want to hit people until they can't get up. And they're reaching the conclusion that maybe Peter doesn't really have their best interests at heart, or perhaps anyone's. Captain Britain is righteously furious, as well he should be. He says, hey, I don't want to be any kind of a figurehead. I don't really care about patriotism. I just care about what's right. And Peter, you're an asshole. Specifically, 
If I was your enemy, I'd push your flapping jaw through the mass of scheming paranoia you call a brain. And Captain Britain doesn't do this. Um, in fact, Kurt is the one who ends up punching Peter out. But, you know, someone does, and that's the important thing. Yeah, Peter calls Kurt a filthy kraut, and that's just a bad plan. Peter has so many bad plans. Peter's plans are terrible. Um, the, the slightly less bad actors, Gabriel and Michael, now aided by Alistair, who we know is a good guy, go back to running RCX and take over Cloud9 and promise they're going to take good care of the Warpies, try to figure out what's, what's hurting them, get them stabilized, you know, probably send them to preschool. And that pretty much wraps up the Warpy stories for a very, very long time. It does, yeah. I think there's going to be a little more later, like, for instance, the stuff you mentioned in the cold open, Jay. But the Warpies get a happy ending for a while, which in comics is about the best you can hope for. Well, some of that is actually going to be an Excalibur se- series, too. True, true, true. So, we have lots more stuff from this arc to cover. We're going to get to that another time. So for right now, you've got questions. Crooked Knight asks on Tumblr. And this question has some spoilers for a fairly recent episode of The Gifted, so we're going to bleep those sections out for now. Um, if you've seen the show, you'll know what Crooked Knight is asking about, and I'll avoid spoilers in my answer. What are your feelings on The Gifted's take on the m- Particularly the idea that human-passing mutants can brand themselves to earn membership. As an able-bodied cis white dude, I'm honestly not sure how to take that twist on the metaphor. It feels like it's near the line that separates intersectional solidarity from appropriation, but I don't know where the line is exactly. Okay, that is a terrific question, Crooked Knight, and I've actually got a pretty solid answer for it. I know very much where that line is. So the deal with that that community's stance is that it's not about appropriating mutant identity. It's about specifically human passing mutants consciously and permanently rejecting their passing privilege in solidarity with mutants who can't pass. A human doing the thing that those those human passing mutants can do to get membership into the community would absolutely be appropriation. Um, but a human passing mutant doing so would not. And to, to elaborate further on that, I really like the way this group is portrayed on The Gifted. We've only seen a little bit of them, but I, I generally dig it. And I particularly dig who their leader is, because he is a character who I think is very cool, whom everyone tends to forget exists and or mixes up with Legion because they have similar hair. So I was really, really happy to see him show up and to be a pretty damn cool character in The Gifted. All right, so so after that that vagueness, um, True Believer Tony asks, also on Tumblr, new time listener, so forgive me if this has been discussed, but why do you think writers often have Kitty go by her real name rather than Shadowcat? That's a really good question, and it's not one that I'd thought very much about before. Now, as far as I know, Kitty's codename is still, even in 2018, still officially Shadowcat. Unlike, say, Jean Grey, who's officially unadopted codenames, Kitty has only ever changed them. She's never fully gotten rid of them. That said, from a meta perspective, Kitty Pride is a rare example of somebody whose person name is kind of more distinctive and memorable than her codename. There's also the fact that the X-Men almost always called her Kitty because she was much younger than them. She was a child, and so she wasn't exactly a full member of the team, at least not in the same way that all the adults were. So we got used to hearing her called that. As for Shadowcat, I mean, the name sounds really cool, but it also sounds kind of generic. Like, it only somewhat relates to her powers, 
and it mainly relates to a very specific bit of character growth from a very specific storyline that didn't really stay a prominent part of her, the whole thing with her being a ninja after going through trauma. I'm going to give a slightly different answer. My, my take on this is that Kitty Pride rarely goes by Shadowcat for the same reasons that you probably don't go in your day-to-day life by the handle you used online when you were 12. Metal Miles? I guess yeah. that's true. I, I usually just sign my checks Miles Stokes on the rare occasion when I sign checks. Miles with, with a Y and a Z, as I recall. Well, yeah, because James Hetfield of Metallica spelled his name J-A-Y-M-Z sometimes, and, you know, Metallica was cool. Anyway, at present, in X-Men continuity, Kitty Pride is as much a mutant ambassador as she is a superhero, so in a case like that, I think having a more human-friendly name is useful, like, uh, utilitarianly, but also kind of thematically appropriate, you know? Also, I suspect that when people use her given name in battle, people probably, or, or, you know, standers by assume that it's just a nickname for Shadowcat. Shadow Kitty. Shady Kitty. Aw. Yeah, she's got some flexibility on that front, is what I'm saying. On another front entirely, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and support at certain levels comes with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional concepts and characters. Let's get started with the angry Claremontian narrator. Safan, you thought you knew who your allies were and your enemies. But little did you understand that forces far greater and more complex than any you might have fathomed were pulling the strings, and that the erstwhile friend who had called for your aid was none other than your long-ago enemy, Maya Sapurka. And now the mic goes to Sexy Nightcrawler, which I feel like is kind of a redundant appellation, but sure. Unglaublich! Why did I not think of this sooner? Engaging in, what does she call it, a lip massage with the lovely and statuesque Cerise was the perfect uncomfortable distraction to slip away from our good Cloud Nine chaperones. Lucy Bloodstone. The next time canvassers stop you on the street like an angry European mob stopping a circus-based teleporter, clipboards in hands like so many pitchforks and torches. Send them backing away by dipping the nearest consenting adult back and kissing them deeply. Eric Sarton, is an office meeting taking ages, your supervisor claiming your time and attention like a blue satanic patriarch claiming credit for your birth. Offer a warm and sensual massage to your most trusted office mate, and you'll be on your way in a flash. We are all as peaceful as life allows, mine friends. But this life can be a war, and we are warriors of passion. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, X-Force reconnects with several old friends... In space!